So as we're getting ready to talk about 1 Samuel chapter 1, a woman of grace, let's answer this question first. Who is Samuel? Obviously the book is named after him. Who is Samuel? Okay, so quick history recap. Israel, led by Joshua, crossed the Jordan River about 1406 B.C. It took about a few decades for them to take over the majority of the Promised Land and to conquest the, the, other, the other peoples that were there and the tribes settle in after a few decades of war into their allotted lands and they come into the period after a few decades of the time we call the period of the Judges, the time of the Judges, and that is the book of Judges is when that period takes place. It's about a 350-year period that that book covers. And in that book, and during this time of the Judges, it says that there, Israel had no king and that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. A very sad verse that tells you the, the kind of the construct of the time period of the judges, what we're looking at. People are just doing what they want to do. Not a whole lot of God-worshipping going on. It's a difficult time for Israel. But at times, during these 350 years, God raises up what we call judges. They're, they're more like military leaders, kind of like generals would be a way to think of it. They're not really prophets. They're not really priests, but they are men chosen by God and a woman chosen by God to be used in mighty ways during this time, and they kind of rescue Israel different ways at different times. So we're thinking during the times of judgment, you're talking about Shamgar, and you're talking about Deborah, and you're talking about Samson, okay? Those stories that many of you learned when you were a little bitty-bitty uh, in Sunday school, okay? So then along comes Samson about 1105 B.C. So we're about 400 years since Israel has initially went into the Promised Land. That's where we are, about 3,100 years ago. Okay, this is, this is not me making this up. This is historically documented fact. So you can go check me on that. So uh, about 400 years later, Samuel, which his name means uh, asked of God, or the name of God would be another way to say it, but asked of God or granted by God would be what his name would mean. Samuel lived and led Israel during a time of great transition, a time when things were, everybody did what they wanted to do into a time of the kings. Samuel was the last judge, so there were 12 judges and then Samuel. He's the last judge. He's nearly a king, Honestly, it never really says that, but if you just look at the way he led, he's almost king-like in the way he leads uh, from, a, from a leadership standpoint. Um, he led a fairly unified, for really the first time since Joshua, a unified Israel. They had been very on their own, do their own thing for that 400-year period. So since Joshua, this is the first person that came along and kind of made Israel act like a nation together, Israel together. But he was also a priest and a prophet so he's the first really unifying leader since Joshua, but he's also the first prophet since Moses. So Samuel was a great leader. He was a great leader in the history of Israel. Under his leadership, by relying on God, Israel finally throws off the burden of the Philistines at a time when, when most all Israel really truly thought that God had just completely abandoned them. He leads them to throw off the burden of the Philistines. Samuel, he delivered powerful prophetic judgments on Eli, the high priest, and his sons. He anointed Saul, the first king, and then risked his own life 
delivering another message of judgment from God to Saul for his disobedience. He anoints David king. And then, before David takes his throne, Samuel passes away. Samuel, Samuel is the leader that transitions God's nation, Israel, from a loosely confederated tribe thing that does what they want in their own eyes to a kingdom led by a king after God's own heart. He's often overlooked, I feel like, but he is a great leader, a great man of God, a pivotal human being in the history of God's people, a pivotal human being in how we end up getting Jesus. We'll dive into that today. So how does a person become someone like this? How does a Samuel become a Samuel? What had to take place in order for this to happen? What kind of groundwork did God have to lay? What kind of person did God need to have Samuel? Let's look at that as we dive in today. So we're going to be looking at, again, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. If you're there with me, you can read along. If you're not, it's up here. If you need a Bible, there's some in the pews, and if you don't have one, I will be glad to get you one after the service that you can have. So there was a name, there was a man, excuse me, from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jehoam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He, being Elkanah, had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of the armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Verse 4, whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion or a special portion, but only one portion to Hannah for her love, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival, that would be Peninnah, would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival, Peninnah taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband, Elkanah, would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest, Eli, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Make a vow, she pleaded. Excuse me, making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not to forget me, and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And his hair will never be cut, or he will take a Nazarite vow, your translation may say. Same thing. Continuing verse 12. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depths of my anguish and my resentment. Eli responded, go in peace 
And may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent or sad. So that's where we are right now. First 18 verses of Samuel. What do we have here? Well, we've got a, a man named Elkanah. He's a godly man. He takes his family to Shiloh for the worship service, for the sacrifice on a yearly basis. It's, it's, it's obvious that he is the, the godly leader of the home. He's made a mistake, a pretty big one. He has two wives, and it's obviously causing trouble in his home. It's causing a divided home. See, often in Scripture, especially when, when Scripture is explaining what human beings have done, it doesn't always say, and they shouldn't have done that, right? It doesn't say that Elkanah shouldn't have two wives, but it doesn't have to. If you just read what's taking place, it's obvious that what is taking place is causing much trouble, and therefore, the easy inference to make is, probably shouldn't have two wives. So Elkanah is a godly man, but he's, he's got two wives, and it's causing, it's causing trouble. So we have Peninnah. She's the second wife. He married Hannah first, Elkanah married Peninnah second. Why do you think he married Peninnah second after marrying Hannah? Probably because, you're with me, Hannah couldn't have children, right? He wanted kids. It's a lack of faith on his part. <laughs> In other words, he didn't think God could deliver him children through Hannah, so he married someone else because, after all, not having kids was a big deal. Not having kids is still a big deal, but it was a big deal Back then, you had to have kids just to survive. And if you couldn't have kids, something was wrong with you. You were being punished. You were bad. You were not okay. And it's obvious, too, although it doesn't say this, that it wasn't Elkanah's fault that Hannah couldn't have children. That's another thing that, that I've overlooked many times reading through this passage. I've never thought about that. So he, he has his wife, Hannah, and they can't have children, and then he has a second wife, and then he has children. So now Hannah knows it's her biological fault, not her fault spiritually or anything she's done, but she is the woman that can't have kids. Hannah, the name Hannah means woman of grace. And this woman of grace, Hannah, is she is full of despair. She loves Elkanah. She wants to provide him children. She wants to provide him a son. She wants to mother a son. She wants to mother a child in general. And so she is very, very full of despair and barrenness because of her barrenness. And then what do we have? The fourth thing we have here, Elkanah, like many of us, I mean us as in guys that are married or have been married, he puts his foot in his mouth. She's, she's broken hearted. And he comes up to her and says, what's wrong, honey? Aren't I enough? Come on, man. We do that, though, don't we? Hannah doesn't. I like the fact that there's no verse there where Hannah scolds him and says, Look, look, you idiot. Can't you see how brokenhearted I am? It's not about you right now. It's about my pain and suffering. You know, that, of course, obviously, in the, in the time we're in right now, the time I'm personally in right now, things jump out that haven't ever jumped out. And and that is a good example of what not to do when someone is grieving. See, Elkanah made it about himself. Aren't I good enough for you? 
He wasn't worried about Hannah so much as he was worried about the fact that he wasn't good enough for her. So when you're, when you're trying to console someone that is grieving, try very, very hard to take yourself out of it, your uncomfortability out of it, how you feel out of it, and try to just focus on the person that is grieving. Never really picked that up before, but you know, things jump out depending on what season of life you're in. The living word, right? It does. It brings out things that you wouldn't normally see. So Elkanah puts his foot in his mouth, which obviously doesn't make Hannah feel any better, right? He's trying to make her feel better. He makes her feel worse. Guys, we've definitely been there. Some of you are probably there this morning, maybe even on the way to church. And then we've got Eli, right? The high priest, the inconsiderate priest, right? The man of God, the pastor. He doesn't really do a very good job either, right? He, he, he's probably, we know this if you continue reading 1 Samuel, which I would advise you to do, read your Bible throughout the week. Be surprised how that could help us out. We know that things aren't good for Eli. We know if you go forward in, in 1 Samuel, his sons are they're pretty much crooked. They're pretty much crooked and, 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 and just bad sons. They're really bad priests. They're, 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 they're corrupt. That'd be the good word for them. They are corrupt. And Eli is dealing with that. And he's probably just a little bit worn out from all that. You know, sons, children that stray and don't do what they're supposed to, they, they can do that. They can, they can wear the parents out. So he, Eli, is, he's jaded, he's worn out, and it causes him to be a little inconsiderate. He sees her praying, and it was common to pray out loud. And she wasn't praying out loud. She was just sitting there, and she was moving her mouth. So he assumes that she's just drunk. What else would she be doing? What's wrong with this woman? She's sitting here kind of at the temple door around the temple at Shiloh, and, and can you just get out of here? You're bothering me. You're another one of those. You know, you're here, but you're not really here for the right reasons. And he says, you know, are you drunk? Can you just get your, get your wine and get out of here? She says, sir, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I'm brokenhearted. I'm brokenhearted, and I just want a son. She responds in grace because she's a woman of grace. She responds gracefully and faithfully. Catch that last part of that last verse on verse 18. Right? She prays. She's graceful to the priest and his own mistakes and stubbornness and in consideration of how she's feeling. And then Eli, being a man of God, although he's messed up 10 seconds before this, says, hey, May it be as you've asked. Gives her his priestly blessing. Through her prayers, her faith, now the priest has given her a blessing. How do we know that Hannah responds in faith? Well, what is responding in faith? First, first, first of all, responding in faith is putting your hope and trust into action. That's what faith is. There's, a, there's always an object of faith, and, there's, and faith is always actionable. Faith is not just what you do inside of here. Faith is what is inside of here causes these to do something or these to do something. And what does Hannah do after she gets this blessing? What does it say she does? Some of you have been looking back. I can see, your, I see the top of your head, not your faces. She gets up. She's no longer sad. She's no longer grieving. Why? Because she feels like God is going to answer her prayer. She trusts that God is going to answer her prayer. She believes and her body responds physically with what she does. And she says she's no longer despondent. And she went and had something to eat. Have you ever been that sad, that worn out, that grieved, that you can't even eat? And now Hannah can eat. Her faith is being put into action. That's where we are now. So what's going to happen? 
Let's see what it says. Verse 19. The next morning, after this prayer and this interaction with Eli, the next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. So they had church again, there where they'd gone to, for the sacrifice. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. How long was that? Well, probably about nine months. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. Again, the name Samuel, oftentimes in, in biblical names, the names have a meaning. It means asked of God or granted of God or the name of God. She names him after what he represents to her. She begged God for him and now she has him. She's requested from the Lord and the Lord has answered. Moving along there, verse 21. When Elkanah and, his, and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice, this would be again, okay? So we've had about a year now. So, so they go home after being there, after this prayer, after this interaction with Eli, and now, they, and now they've gone home. She's gotten pregnant. Hannah's gotten pregnant. She was pregnant for about nine months. She had him, and now it's time again to go back. This is an annual feast that they're going to, the annual sacrifice, and his vow offering to the Lord. Verse 22, it's a year later. Hannah did not go and explain to her husband, after the child is weaned, that's key, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband, this is how we know Elkanah is not a bad guy, he just messed up. Her husband Elkanah replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, or your translation may say three bulls, half a bushel of flour and a clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Verse 26, please, my Lord, talking to Eli, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. You know, the one that you thought was drunk about a year ago. I'm back, and looky, 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 looky what I got. I'm here. I'm the woman that stood beside you about a year ago. Excuse me, it's about three years now. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I had asked for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshiped the Lord there, or they worshiped the Lord there. So, Hannah's distraught. She wants a child. They go for their annual sacrifice as they, they have done their entire lives. Peninnah had multiple children, so you know they've been married for several years, so they've done this several times. And she goes there and she begs God, please God, give me a son. Please take away my shame. Please take away my grief. Please take away my hurt. Eli makes fun of her and then gives her her blessing after she responds so gracefully, being a woman of grace that she is. She goes home and God answers her prayer and gives her the blessing and the miracle of life like he's done so many times. Look at the patriarchs of Israel. All three of them came from barren woman. Why? Because life itself is a miracle of God. All the things we can do scientifically, all the things that we can, we've studied and we've figured out, we still don't understand how that happens. I mean, we can say what happens after, but we still don't understand. We can't say, how does life come out of nothing? How does life come out of this? And so it's a miracle of God, and she is blessed 
by God. And then it says that about a year later, they go back. And Hannah says, not yet. I, I'm not taking him yet. I'm going to make sure he's ready. So the common cultural thing back then uh, was to nurse for about three years. You say, well, that sounds like a long time. I agree. Sounds like a long time to me. Glad it wasn't me. But why would you nurse so long back then? Well, it wasn't like any of the Gerber jars laying around. It was the only option you had to feed the child. So she nursed him for about three years, and then after he was weaned, she takes him back. So she, has, she goes there. She comes home, gets pregnant. About a year later, they go back. And then about two more years later, when Eli is, or excuse me, when Samuel is three, now she goes back and she fulfills the vow that she had given to the Lord. And she takes him, Samuel, to Eli. So what do we know now? Well, we know that God answered Hannah's prayer. We know that Elkanah continued to lead his family to worship God because he's gone back again. And he went back again. He went back again. He went back with her this time to give Samuel to the Lord. Hannah had Samuel to nurse and mother daily for about three years until the time of weaning. And we know that Hannah was faithful. She put her hope and trust in action. She gave Samuel back to the Lord, which sounds like, to me, a very difficult thing to do. I don't know about you, but giving up my son back to the Lord after I've begged and, and wanted him for three years, and, then all of a sudden, and now I've got him, and, and, I, and I get to have him for three years, and now I give him back. How can Hannah do that? How can she, what, what is it that gives her the power to do that? Well, she trusts in God, obviously, right? She trusts in God, and she trusts in something that's even more miraculous than the fact that God gave her Samuel in the first place. But here's a verse that I think, I know personally, I have overlooked. I've overlooked this numerous times reading through this book. I've never noticed it until preparing for this message for today. How exceptional a mother Hannah is. It's already obvious that she's an exceptional mother, that she's a woman of grace. Just look at how she's carried herself, how full of grace she is and the way she deals with other human beings. But she's got this son, and she's nursed him and taken care of him daily for three years. And now she goes and she takes him to Eli, full well knowing Eli's two sons and the whole situation is not a good situation that she's dropping her son off into. But she said she's going to give him back to the Lord and allow him to be raised in the temple and be a man of God. But there's one verse that I've overlooked a million times, and it's in, verse, uh, it's in chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. They're going back again every year for the sacrifice. Each year, his being Samuel, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. So she's giving him back to God, but she hadn't stopped being his mom because that's what moms do. <laughs> Good moms are faithful. Good moms are there any possible way they can be there for their children. And she had fulfilled her vow, and she gave him back to the Lord, but she was darn sure going back every year and giving him a little something, something he needed. And don't you think she probably asked him a few questions? Don't you think she probably gave him a little bit of advice each year she came by there? Don't you think she probably did what good mothers do every year? I just, I just, I'd kind of missed that. I'd always thought of Hannah as being an exceptional woman and an exceptional mother, but I'd always missed that one little verse. She goes back every year while he's growing up. 
She makes sure he's okay. She's a woman of grace. But again, I come back to that question. How could Hannah give up her son back to God? How could Hannah give up her son back to God? Think about it. Could you? Could you do that? And then think about God did that for you and for me. How could Hannah give up this blessing? What is it that gives someone the courage and the hope, the faith, the trust in action to do that? Because she knows who God is. She knows that giving up Samuel in this life fulfills the vow she made to God to, give, to get the blessing that she got. But she knows this life is not all there is. She knows this life is not all there is. She's temporarily giving him back to God. She's temporarily giving up her son. She knows full well that because she has faith in God and she's looking forward to the Messiah, that we have the, the unbelievable privilege to know who that Messiah is. We know who Jesus is. She's looking forward to that Savior that's coming. They know that Savior is coming, and they know that faith in that is going to give them eternal life. That's how you can do anything this world throws at you. That's how you can do anything that God asks you to do. Because anything we do in this life is only temporary. But everything we do has eternal significance. Everything we do, everything we say, every relationship we have, every time we encourage someone, every time we love someone, every time we respond in faith when it's difficult, every time we do something that God has called us to do, it has eternal ramifications. Everything we do matters, but everything we do here and experience here is temporary. How could Hannah do that? How could Hannah give up her son back to God? Because she knew and trusted that God was going to give him back to her for eternity. For eternity. And anything in this life, in comparison to eternity, well, it's, it's doable. You can make it. You can make it through it. You can handle it. <clears throat> How do I know that? Am I just pulling that out of thin air? I hope not. If I am, you need to fire me. <laughs> Hannah has a song in chapter 2. It's a great song. Let's just look at a couple of verses. It says, I'm going to read them with you. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted up. My mouth boasts over my enemies. For I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. And then jumping over to verse 6. The Lord brings death and, you there with me? Makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. Just a small snippet of the song that Hannah sings after her blessing, her, answer, her prayer has been answered, and she is preparing to raise her son. She knows that God has the ability to bring down to the Sheol, to the grave, and to raise out of. Only God has that power and ability. So, this woman of grace, think about it. Think about this. 
I, I, I think weirdly, I've, I've admitted that to you more than once. You know, Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, right? Everything's supposed to be good, but it, it's, it's not quite there yet. And then for 400 years, about, Israel's just in disarray. And I think sometimes, like, why did God wait so long? Why did it take so long for this Samuel to arrive? And then I thought, well, maybe God was waiting on Hannah first. Maybe God had given the opportunity to previous Hannahs. Maybe he didn't want it to wait that long. Maybe he had given Hannah 250 years before that the opportunity to give her son back to the Lord. But she just couldn't quite do it. Maybe another hundred years passed and the opportunity came along again. But Hannah just couldn't quite do it. But this Hannah, this Hannah did. And maybe it took her being barren. And maybe it took Peninnah and her lovely self preparing Hannah's heart for her to be able to do what she was doing. It's almost like it's almost like God's kind of in control. <laughs> when we have questions, and we're, why this, and why now, and why then, and why her, and why him, and we have all these questions, but if you just look at the faithfulness of God through his word, it's almost like he's in control. And maybe he did give other Hannah's a choice, but maybe he knew that it would take 350 years, and it would take that woman in that spot at that time to give birth from that husband to that son. Because think about this. Samuel transitions Israel from judges to kings. The first king, he ain't it. That's who the Israel wanted, but it wasn't who God had chosen. Then, at the risk of his own life, Samuel, as he's given direction from God, anoints David king while Saul is still alive, knowing that that could cost him his life. Why is that such a big deal? Because Jesus had to come from David. See, maybe God was waiting on Hannah so they could have Samuel so that he could have David because he promised through the line of David would come the savior of the world. So no, no Hannah, no Samuel, no David, no Jesus. Maybe God's in control. Maybe he knows what he's doing a little bit better than you and I. And I'll just finish up with two questions. With all that mushing around in my brain and your brain and our hearts, about how God is truly in control, even when it's difficult to accept. But God chose Hannah for that moment, that woman full of grace that could faithfully execute what he had called her to do. And he chose Samuel the same way, spoke to him audibly, and he led through some, some difficult things. Again, read it. It's awesome. It's very fun to read. Spend a few minutes in it this week. Samuel led through that. He chose him for that. My question is, what's God chosen you for?
if God is in control and he has a plan and he uses his people to accomplish his will, what has he chosen you for? What gift has he given you? He gave Hannah the gift of grace, an extraordinary faith. What has he given you a gift for? What has he called you to do? Who has he called you to raise? Who has he called you to love? Who has he called you, like Samuel had to do, to bring a word from the Lord that the people hearing it didn't really want to hear? What is he causing you to risk? What is he calling you to risk? He, he called Samuel to risk his life to be able to pronounce the word of the Lord. What has he chosen you for? And are you going to do it? What are you going to do about it? Has he chosen you for something specific at this moment, at this time? And you're going to do it, and his will is going to be accomplished. Or is it going to take the next you? Like it took maybe the next Hannah, and the next Hannah. And then finally, that Hannah was the one that was ready. That David is the one that was ready. Or that John was the one that was ready. Are you going to do what God's called you to do? And is he going to be able to accomplish his will through you? Or are you just going to go, ah, that's too hard, God. That's going to cost me too much, God. I care about this physical life and this physical temporary world more than I care about you accomplishing your will through me. The answer to that question is up to you. What has God chosen you for? And what are you going to do about it? I had a conversation with a young man a little over, about a week ago. Going through some difficult stuff. Pretty mixed up. Feels pulled this way by everyone in his life. But he's pretty sure that's not the way he's supposed to go. And he's mixed up. And he's hurting. And he's struggling. And I told him this. And I'll tell you the same thing. And I'll tell myself the exact same thing. Pray about what God wants you to do and he will answer that prayer and when he does no matter what anybody else thinks do it just do it pray about what God wants you to do what has he chosen you for and when he answers that prayer then trust him and do it that's my prayer for us today if you're here this morning and you're, and, uh, you're checking it out and you're not sure and, and you're, you're like, you know, is it always like this? What are we talking about? Like, <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean that there's eternal life and this life is temporary? What do you mean by all that? I'll tell you real simply and then we'll close. God loves you and me and he sent his son to pay the price for your wrongdoing and mine, our sin. He paid the price on a cross. He shed his blood for you and for me because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And because of that price being paid, he asked you to have faith in him, his son, Jesus, God the Father. And through faith in that, God says you are reborn from above. He places his Holy Spirit inside of you. And from that moment on, you begin eternal life temporarily still in this physical world, but eventually in a place called heaven, a place that we don't have words to describe.
We don't have the ability to describe it. We've tried, but we hadn't come close yet. Heaven is not sitting on a cloud being bored for eternity. One of the greatest tricks the devil's ever pulled off is convincing church people that heaven's boring. <laughs> Heaven ain't going to be boring. It's going to be awesome. And for those of you that are here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus already, <laughs> whatever he's chosen you for, the end result is this. While you are alive, you are called to bring heaven to earth as much and as often as is possible. Whatever it is he's asked you to do and wants you to do, that's why he's asking you to do it, is to bring heaven to earth until he brings us to heaven. So if you've never placed your faith in that this morning, Stuart will be up here uh, at the end. If you, if you need to talk while we're singing this song, he'll be happy to lead you uh, in, in understanding that better. I'll be here afterwards, and uh, we will, we'll be happy and, and joyful, joy, overjoyed to lead you in that decision. But if you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus already, then, then pray about these two questions. What has God chosen you for, and what are you going to do about it? And then as a church, let's celebrate that together whenever he puts that on your heart. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. I thank you that, that you loved us enough to give us the gift of eternal life. Lord, I love you that you're good enough to give us the gift of eternal life. I love us that you're, that you're just enough to save us from ourselves. Lord, I, I thank you that you are God, creator God, the one and only creator of this universe, God, and that you foreknew that Hannah was coming, and you foreknew that Samuel was coming, and you foreknew that David was coming, and you knew, Lord, from eternity past, how it would play out for your son to get here at the perfect time, at the perfect moment, to be the perfect sacrifice, to save us to a perfect eternity forever. Thank you for that this morning, God. I pray as we sing this last song together, God, that we are, <laughs> that we are invigorated and excited about that truth that you have saved us to a perfect eternity forever. Let us, not, let us not leave here this morning, God, without celebrating that in our hearts and with our mouths. Lord, if there's someone here that needs to make a decision for you, Lord, let them make that decision today because tomorrow, even the next 10 minutes, God, is not promised to any one of us. Let today be the day of salvation. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.